The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. On this episode of News World, how did mammals survive the massive asteroid strike 66 million years ago that led to the extinction of the dinosaurs? How have scientists pieced together the tale of mammals using fossil clues and DNA? My guest today is, quote, one of the stars of modern paleontology, according to National Geographic, and has worked on dig sites and in labs all around the world. He is also the paleontology advisor to the new film, Jurassic World Dominion, which opened in theaters on Friday. In his new book, Dr. Steve Brusati vividly imagines lost worlds and introduces us to a sweeping and revelatory new history of mammals, drawing on cutting-edge science and his own fieldwork to illuminate the lost story of the extraordinary family tree that led to us. I'm a huge fan of his, and I've been reading his new book, The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, so I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Stephen Brusati. Chair of Paleontology and Evolution in the School of Geosciences at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Steve, thank you for joining me again. Well, Mr. Speaker, my pleasure. We had a lot of fun talking dinosaurs a few months ago, and I'm happy to be back to talk mammals and maybe a little smattering of dinosaurs with the film. But with the new book coming out, I'm just very pleased that we were able to get you a copy and that you enjoyed it enough to have me back on for another chat. Let's start with the most popular thing, which is the movie. What was it like now to be an advisor on one of the Jurassic Park films? It was surreal. That's probably the best word. 
the original film came out in 1993 and I was nine years old. I remember seeing it in the cinema. I was with my dad and with my brothers back home in Ottawa, Illinois, a little town I'm from. And it just blew us away. At that time, the special effects were so far beyond anything in any film. And those dinosaurs were so realistic. And it led my brother to become obsessed with dinosaurs. And for me, it took a little while longer, but really living with my brother every day, his bedroom, you know, he made it into a dinosaur museum. It was just, he loved the film so much. And over time, that's what helped me find that there was this future in paleontology. So in many ways, I'm a paleontologist because of the film. And then nearly 30 years later to be able to work on one of the sequels behind the scenes, advising on the dinosaurs, trying to ensure that they're realistic, trying to make sure that the director, the artist had the most up-to-date information. It was a lot of fun. It was really cool to work with creative people in a very different industry who are just very, very good at what they do. And the film was out. Go out and see it. I think it's a great blockbuster. I think it's a great dinosaur movie. And we've learned a lot of things about dinosaurs since Jack Horner advised in that very first film. I mean, while the first film was amazing, partly because of special effects and partly because most people never thought about dinosaurs moving naturally, if you were redoing that today, it would have some significant differences, including, I suspect, coloration of the dinosaurs and feathers. Yeah, absolutely. We know now that a lot of dinosaurs had feathers. We didn't know that back in 1993. So the first feathered dinosaur fossils were found in 1996. They were found in China, these very famous fossils that were buried by volcanoes, so all the feathers were locked in. So in 93, when Steven Spielberg was making the first Jurassic Park and when our mutual friend Jack Horner was the science advisor, they didn't know dinosaurs had feathers. They would have been laughed at if they put feathers on those dinosaurs. And then by the bad luck of timing, three years later, those discoveries were made. And we now know that maybe not all dinosaurs, but a lot of them did have feathers. Raptor dinosaurs definitely had feathers. They even had wings. So if the original was being made today, surely it would have incorporated those things. But one of the great things about the new film is that there are feathers on some of the dinosaurs for the first time, really, in the Jurassic franchise. And when I met Colin Trevorrow, the director, he read my dinosaur book. He read The Rise and Fall of Dinosaurs, and he got in touch and said, hey, I read your book. You know, let's meet up, talk dinosaurs. And one thing led to another. But he told me right away when I first met him, he said, I want to put feathers on some of these dinosaurs, finally, and I want you to help me to do it. And I was honored to be asked. And so there's a few dinosaurs in the film. There's Pyroraptor, which is basically what a real Velociraptor would have looked like, covered in feathers, wings on his arms. And then there's some other feathered dinosaurs. I won't give them all away. I don't want to give away too many spoilers. So the movie's out, so go out and see it. We will see feathered dinosaurs. <laughs> all right. We're going to move beyond the movie. But it's interesting, you know, I think the way most people think the world has worked, you went from invertebrates to fish and amphibians to reptiles, including dinosaurs, to eventually an age of mammals. But as you point out in this book, and I must say, some of the most fascinating parts of the book are the early mammals, that mammals actually are very parallel to the dinosaurs and that mammals were hanging out in the same time that we had what we call the age of the dinosaurs also had an amazing number of mammals in it. And can you explain a little bit of that? Because it is fascinating. And I know how much harder it is to find mammal fossils from that era because they're small and you really have to look carefully. It's very different than looking for dinosaurs. So talk just a little bit about the pre-dinosaur rise of mammals and then their relationship during the age of the dinosaurs? I think there's a conception, and it's a misconception, that the history of life 
proceeds in these nice, tidy packages, kind of like in human history, we divide history into eras, you know, based on the reign of monarchs or who was present or whatever. But the real history is bit more complex than that. And the same thing with the history of life. So I think there is this conception that dinosaurs had their day, they died out, and then mammals evolved to take over from the dinosaurs. And it's certainly true that mammals replaced the dinosaurs as big animals and top of the food chain animals, you know, after the asteroid hit. But mammals and dinosaurs actually go back to the same time. They both originated around 225 million years ago, back in the Triassic period, back when all of the land was gathered together as the supercontinent of Pangaea. So the origin story of dinosaurs and mammals, same time, same place, but they had different fates. And dinosaurs, they were destined for grandeur. You know, dinosaurs they became huge. Some of them became as big as jet planes, you know, and you had T-Rexes the size of buses that could crush the bones of their prey, all the hyperbole that comes with dinosaurs. And because dinosaurs were so big and became so big, they seized those niches in the ecosystem. So there wasn't any space for mammals to become really big. So instead, while the dinosaurs went big, the mammals went small. They were relegated to the shadows. And for over 150 million years, mammals lived with dinosaurs. But they never got bigger, as far as we know, than a badger. But in those small sizes, mammals were remarkable. And there were mammals that could run, mammals that could scurry, mammals that could dig, that could climb, that could swim, that could glide. Some of them evolved wings of skin to glide between the trees. This was all happening when they were living incognito, trying to survive in a world dominated by dinosaurs. So really, the dinosaurs kept the mammals small. But the mammals kept the dinosaurs big. You never saw a T-Rex the size of a mouse or a Brontosaurus the size of a rat. And that's because mammals were so good at living underground, living in the undergrowth, living nocturnally, living in the shadows at a time when the dinosaurs were getting all the attention. One of the things that you mentioned in passing, mammals are warm-blooded, but nowadays, I think increasingly, we seem to think that dinosaurs may have been warm-blooded too, although more like birds and not like mammals. That's probably true. And there's a very exciting study that came out a few weeks ago by some colleagues of mine, some very ace young paleontologists. Yasmina Lehman is the name of the lead author, as published in Nature. And she and her team use very sophisticated techniques from geochemistry, basically looking at the chemical elements and the bonds between different elements preserved in the bones and teeth of dinosaurs. And they've made this strong argument that you can tell body temperature kind of from these things and that many dinosaurs were warm-blooded, just like us. But when it comes to mammals being warm-blooded, this is one of our superpowers, really. There's many things that mammals either have uniquely or things like warm-bloodedness. They're not unique to mammals, but they're very, very, very rare in the animal kingdom. And so what makes a mammal a mammal is things like we have hair. We feed our babies milk. We have big brains. We have high intelligence. We have really keen senses of smell and hearing. We don't have very good vision, by the way. Humans are pretty unusual among mammals in even being able to see color. But the other senses are really strong. And then, of course, mammals have all these different teeth. You know, we have canines and incisors and premolars and molars in our mouths. You look at the head of a T-Rex, all the teeth kind of look the same. So because we have all these different teeth, we can grip and rip and chew food at the same time. And we have very, very just particular jaws and teeth that can bite really strongly, chew food really well. So those are the kind of things that, as a whole, make mammals mammals and make mammals different from other animals. And 
Almost all of those things were evolving as mammals or their ancestors were trying to survive in a world dominated by other animals like dinosaurs. You make the point, which I found fascinating and I did not know until I read your book. We found at least one mammal which actually had baby dinosaurs in its tummy. Yeah. Isn't that something? It turns the classic story on its head. You know, we think about the dinosaurs kept the mammals in the shadows. And it's true, they did. But there was at least one dinosaur that would have feared mammals because in the Cretaceous of China, in the same rocks where you find the feather dinosaurs, these ecosystems buried by volcanoes, kind of like Pompeii, when Mount Vesuvius buried all the humans in Pompeii, it's similar fossil preservation. And there's a mammal there. It's called Repenomamus. That's its formal scientific name. It's about the size of a wolverine or a badger. And it was preserved and buried so quickly by this volcano that the remnants of its last meal are still fossilized in its stomach. And that last meal was a baby dinosaur. So that mammal ate dinosaurs. One of the things that comes through in the book that's, I think, fascinating and almost worthy of a book on its own is the number of times that we have catastrophic events that are actually caused by volcanoes. We all think about the asteroid, which ended the age of the dinosaurs. But there are a whole series going back well before the dinosaurs of sudden huge eruptions, sometimes covering hundreds of miles, in which volcanoes are spewing out various gases that in some cases become, for example, sulfuric acid and wipe out life in the ocean. Talk just very briefly about this whole notion that you have these spasms of catastrophism. In almost every case, they were volcanic rather than asteroid. Yes. This is a recurring theme in the history of life that occasionally there are these mass extinctions where lots of species die out all around the world very quickly because of some common cause. And the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs and a lot of other animals is one example. But asteroids really are quite rare. What's more common are these big volcanic eruptions. And there have been a few times in Earth history where volcanoes have started to erupt at scales that are just outside the bounds of anything humans have ever witnessed. You know, we're not talking about the Hawaiian volcanoes releasing a little bit of lava. We're not talking about Mount St. Helens or Pinatubo exploding one day. We're talking about giant canyons in the Earth just opening up like somebody slashed the Earth with a giant machete. And for hundreds of thousands of years, lava just gushing out. And these kind of eruptions happened at the end of the Permian period. That's about 250 million years ago. And also at the end of the Triassic period. That's when the supercontinent was breaking apart. And as it split apart, these volcanoes erupted. That was about 200 million years ago. And both of those extinctions are things that mammals or their ancestors, our ancestors, had to endure. We had ancestors that faced down those volcanoes and made it through. And the reason they made it through was that they were evolving some of these adaptations like hair to keep warm and milk to feed their babies and so on. Those turned out to be really, really useful things when the world went to chaos. And what these volcanoes would do, basically, they erupted for so long and so much magma erupted, it would come up through the earth and it would burn the earth. It's like an engine burning gasoline. They would release a lot of carbon dioxide, a lot of methane, a lot of the gases that could warm the atmosphere. There have been many instances in the past where temperatures have gone up really quickly. And the Earth always has to respond. It always has to endure. And it does. And sometimes things die. But thankfully, our ancestors were able to endure what those volcanoes did to the environment and to the climate. And here we are.
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God. We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. there in fact if i remember correctly the permian extinction at the end of the permian just before the period which becomes the age of dinosaurs may have been the highest percentage of death ever partly because it so deeply affected the ocean yes maybe 95 percent of species died from the fossil record we can make these estimates and the fossil record is far from perfect you know there's lots of biases only certain things get preserved as fossils But from the best estimates, maybe 90 to 95 percent. You're absolutely right. The oceans were just hammered. It got really hot really fast. And that led to changes in sea level and that sort of thing. But it also caused the oceans to become very acidic. And it's an extreme analogy. But it's like, you know, imagine bathing in vinegar. (laughs) You wouldn't do that. It didn't get that bad. But if you increase the acid content of the oceans, that's just not good for animals, really for anything. So that was a horrible moment of death. But out of that extinction came some survivors. And those survivors then had a whole new world to explore. And it was from those survivors that both dinosaurs and mammals then evolved in the Triassic period. So we owe our existence really to that extinction in a strange roundabout way. It's fascinating in that you then have a long period, you know, millions of years, in which the dinosaurs flourish, the mammals are there, things are evolving, birds are evolving as a branch of dinosaurs. Turtles, for some reason, just keep coming along. I guess turtles and crocodiles are two of the most stable of all the vertebrates in having found a way of life and a body shape that really just seems to work. And I think sometimes when we look back and we think about some kind of ladder of success, we underestimate them because they're so stable and they've been around so long. But in fact, 
it's really a compliment. Being a turtle turns out to be a very survivable model. And for that matter, so does being a crocodile. You're absolutely right. And you know what's fascinating? And you'll find this fascinating. And you'll have to join us sometime, actually. I was just in New Mexico just a little bit ago. So I did some Jurassic World stuff in London and did the stuff here in Los Angeles, the surreal life of this small glimpse into the movie world. But in between, I went out to do field work with my students and with my dear friend, Tom Williamson, who's the curator in Albuquerque. And what we are always trying to find in New Mexico are either fossils of the last dinosaurs or fossils of the mammals that took over. There's a great transitional fossil sequence across the mass extinction. So we were out looking for mammals. We want to find the mammals. You know, I've become so interested in mammals. That's why I wrote The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, why the new book is out. You know, it's fascinating. It's our story. So I'm always looking for the jaws and the teeth of mammals. But they're actually kind of rare. In the rocks that formed in the first two or 300,000 years after the extinction, you find mammals, but you know what you find a lot more of? You find a lot more crocs and you find a lot more turtles. So we just, the other day, we're just building a big plaster jacket. One of my students, Hans, found a beautiful turtle. So we jacketed this up and the plaster bandages took it out. We found lots of crocs. They were great survivors too. So it's not only us as mammals that have been able to survive. Other groups have done it. And as you say, being a croc, being a turtle, they have figured out ways that just work and they're pretty stable. And of course, in the case of crocodiles, I don't know about turtles, but crocodilians can estivate and basically bury themselves in the mud, slow down their entire heartbeat and hang out for a year or more without eating. And so that may be part of what happened is that the during the great crisis of the asteroid, they found some way to just let her pass over before they came back out to play. Yeah, I think so. I think they, in that scenario, when suddenly, just imagine, you know, one day this asteroid falls out of the sky. There was no real inclination, if you were a dinosaur or a mammal or a turtle or whatever, that this was going to happen. Just one day, boom, you know, a six mile wide rock smashes into the earth. It releases more energy than a billion nuclear bombs put together, and it just unleashes instantaneously wildfires, earthquakes, tsunamis, and then the atmosphere becomes superheated and glass bullets start raining down from the sky of all the gunk from the asteroid. And then all the smoke from the wildfires and other stuff clogs the atmosphere, blocks out the sun, plants can't photosynthesize, forests collapse, plant eaters don't have food, meat eaters don't have food. The House of Cards falls. I mean, that is catastrophic. This was probably the single worst day in the history of life when that asteroid hit. And then the next 10 years or so would have just been complete bedlam. But if you're a croc or a turtle and you can hunker down, you're cold-blooded, you don't need to eat a lot, you can bury yourself in the mud, you don't have to eat plants, you can eat detritus, you can eat the stuff that kind of the decaying organic stuff in the rivers and the lakes. That's a great hand of cards to have when catastrophe hits. When you look at a map of the Yucatan Peninsula and you think, how big the asteroid was and how big the impact must have been and the way it sort of came across the whole planet. But as you got further and further away from the impact point, it may have had, in fact, somewhat less impact on life, which gets you to things like the Antarctic and South America. And yet, out of all of that, two of the survivors, interestingly, are mammals and birds. And it seems to me that in the original period of the Paleocene and early Eocene, the birds are actually making a pretty good run. Yes. Yep. So 
And that asteroid hit, I mean, it changed everything so quickly. I mean, for over 150 million years, dinosaurs were filling so many roles in ecosystems. They were the top predators. They were the top plant eaters. They were the biggest animals. And then all of a sudden they were gone. And so there was this vacuum and the surviving species rushed in to fill it. Now, mammals responded. And I tell the story in The Rise and Reign of the Mammals. I use the fieldwork we do in New Mexico to illustrate it, how we're looking in these rocks that formed within a few hundred thousand years after the extinction. And all of a sudden, mammals, which never were bigger than a badger for the previous 150 million years, all of a sudden, within one or 200,000 years, they're as big as pigs. Within a million years, two million years at most, they're as big as cows. So mammals, they expanded in body size. They ballooned in size to basically fill those roles that T-Rex and Triceratops once had. But so did birds, the surviving dinosaurs. Not all dinosaurs died. Birds came from dinosaurs. They're part of the dinosaur family. They survived. And some birds kind of reestablished themselves in the Paleocene and the Eocene, the intervals after the extinction. And some of them became really big. You had these birds that were like 10 feet tall. They were the top predators in many ecosystems. This was before mammals evolved things like wolves and bears and tigers and lions and these kind of things. So early on, after the asteroid, for a while, in many places, it really was the birds that were at the top of the food chain. And that's another interesting story that I don't think is told as often as it should be. You have competition underway. You have mammals really evolving and filling the niches. One of the rules of life seems to be that life will continue to evolve to fill every niche that it can possibly get to. And does so, as you know, with extremophiles, for example, that can live in sulfur, they can live in extraordinary heat. I mean, it's amazing how life adapts it is. Life is very adaptable. Life is very diverse. Life has been changing for such a long time. And yeah, I mean, you never say never when you're talking about living things. You never say anything's impossible because life seems to have done it all. And I think when it comes to surviving these extinctions, that's where it really shows because these events, the big asteroids, the volcanic eruptions, these were so catastrophic. It's shocking to me that anything could survive, but many different living things did. But then after, you know, about 11 million years of evolution in this new post-dinosaur world, you have what's called the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, when the Earth may have gotten as hot as it has ever been since the origin of life. Why did you suddenly get this sudden warming? Yeah, this was about 56 million years ago. It was 10 million years after the asteroid. And this is the quintessential global warming spike in the fossil record. And things got really hot. The temperatures went up by several degrees within a few tens of thousands of years. What happened was, again, it was volcanoes. Because volcanoes release a lot of carbon dioxide and methane. They release a lot of these greenhouse gases. You know, it's not only automobiles that people drive, you know, that release these gases. Nature releases a lot of them, too. And at this, what we call the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, it's just the fancy name for it, this big heat spike, there was a hot spot in the Earth's mantle. It's the layer under the crust. And basically, a hot spot is just for some reason, a lot of energy gets concentrated. And so it leads to a lot of melting of magma. And that hot spot, it parked itself under the North Atlantic. And as this hot spot erupted all this magma, it actually separated North America, Greenland, and Europe. Up until that point, there were still land bridges. Those places were all connected up in the Arctic Circle. As all that magma came up through the crust, it baked the crust of the Earth. It burned the crust of the Earth. And that released a lot of carbon dioxide and a lot of methane, and it did it very, very quickly. 
that hotspot today is still active. Now, the energy level decreased, you know, it was really active for a while. And then it kind of went into a slow decline. But that hotspot is still there today. It still is producing magma. There are still volcanoes erupting. And that hotspot is what we call Iceland. So the whole island of Iceland, those volcanoes sometimes that cancel air flights, you know, you see them on the news. That's the same system of volcanoes that caused all that global warming 56 million years ago. And that just shows how there's a lot we can learn from that event 56 million years ago. Because yes, right now temperatures are changing. So we want to understand these things have all happened before. You know, nothing was happening now. The earth has gone through it all. So we want to look to the fossils and look to the geology to see what the earth has done in the past. And this one has a lot of lessons for us. So the people who talk about the gigantic supervolcano under Yellowstone are technically right, even though it's not probably a concern for our generation. Yes, they are right. That one is still active. And in the Rise and Reign of the Mammals book, I tell a story later on about, we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but there's in Nebraska, a very famous fossil site called the Ashfall Fossil Beds. And this is formed about 12 million years ago when North America was a big savanna. You could have gone on safari in Nebraska back then. There were camels, there were horses, there were elephants, there were rhinos. And these things were buried, a bunch of them, by a mega volcanic eruption that erupted so much ash that this ash fell like snow over much of North America. And that volcanic system was the Yellowstone volcano. It was much more active back then than it is now. But the Yellowstone system now, that's why there's Old Faithful and the geysers. That's where the heat's coming from. But back then, it was much more catastrophic. So hopefully it doesn't <laughs> return to, to that phase. <laughs> Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... <laughs> 
Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I have to ask you, one of the things that doesn't show up a lot in the book, but this absolutely fascinates me, is the rise of bats. I think people have almost no idea how successful bats are. They're extreme mammals and they're sublime mammals. And I have a section in the book all about bats. I have a chapter called Extreme Mammals, and it talks about elephants, whales, and bats, which to me are just all incredible. But bats, when you think about it, first of all, somewhere around like half of all mammals today are bats. I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but bats are so diverse. We just don't recognize it because a lot of them are nocturnal and they're small. And maybe you see them flying around and you just think it's a bird, but there are tons of bats and they live all over the world. I think there are actually over 4,000 species. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it is remarkable. And they live everywhere. They were the first group of mammals to spread all around the world because they could fly. And that's spectacular because think about it. How many animals can really fly? Not that many. And for vertebrates, animals with bones, only three times in the history of life have they evolved flight. There's birds, there's the pterodactyls or the pterosaurs that lived with the dinosaurs, and then bats. So they're one of three times in history an animal with bones develop the ability to fly. And they live everywhere. They have a wide range of diets, of ecology, of behavior. There are truly real vampire bats. I mean, these things are real. They do drink the blood of cattle and sometimes even humans. They live today with us. And we have fossil bats. We have bats that are 55, 56 million years old preserved in places like Wyoming. And there's also a very famous fossil site in Germany that I talk about in the book called the Messel Fossil Beds. They're full of bats and they're primitive bats. They're extinct bats, but they make the most exquisite, beautiful fossils. Do you think that bats existed before the asteroid or are they part of that initial dispersion? See, this is a big debate. With my kind of researcher hat on, with the big project that I'm doing in my lab now with a lot of my students and colleagues is we're building a big family tree of mammals, of all mammals, living and extinct, because we want to understand where the extinct species slot in, what they're related to, and that will help us understand how the extinction worked. When the asteroid hit, what happened? What mammals died? Which ones lived? How quickly did they recover? How did our modern world become established there? So one of the big debates, one of the reasons why we're doing this is because there's a huge debate about whether a lot of today's mammal groups like bats and rodents and primates, whether they actually were there before the asteroid hit and they survived versus whether they all evolved after the asteroid. And it sounds kind of like an academic debate. It turns out to be really important because it would mean a very different thing if you had all these groups of mammals there before the asteroid and they all made it through the catastrophe. That would really speak to the resiliency of mammals. We've never found a fossil of a bat or a primate or any kind of modern mammal in Cretaceous rocks from before the asteroid. However, if you look at the DNA of modern day mammals and you build family trees and you see how similar and different the DNA is, 
you would predict that the common ancestors of lots of today's species were there back in the Cretaceous. It's called a molecular clock. You can use DNA to predict when species originated. So right now there's a mismatch between what the genetics suggest, which is that there were some modern mammal groups there living with the dinosaurs that survived the extinction, versus what the fossils show. And that is that we've never found any of these things. So it's a good question. There's no clear answer right now. It's one of the most exciting debates among mammal researchers. We hope that the research that we're doing will help maybe not settle this debate, but at least give some new insight into it. You know, I have to say, by the way, one of the things I really liked about this book was the degree to which you would reference current researchers, current paleontologists, people around the world who you obviously admire and have great affection for. But I think it gave it a sense of putting us in human contact with the folks who are out there in the museums and in the field doing the work that you're describing. Really, that's one of the parts of the book I found most compelling. Well, I'm glad you say that because I did the same with the dinosaur book and some readers liked it. And, you know, if you look at the one star reviews on Amazon, which authors should never do, I'm sure you never get any one stars. But you look at those. None that I know of. I'm protected from them. (laughs) Some of the people say, oh, there's too many stories about people. Just give me the dinosaurs. And, you know, look, I understand that. I mean, that's what some people want. But for me, science is a process. It's a way of learning. It's a way of understanding. It's a way of thinking. And it's done by humans. And it's done by interesting humans. And these humans make discoveries. They have insights. And I want to try to show that in these books. And in the mammal book, you know, I want to show how do we find fossil mammals? What is it like to go out and look for fossils? What's the reality of that? It's not just glory all the time. It's not like, oh, we go out the desert, we you know find a new fossil. No, there's lots of times you don't find anything. Oh, the students usually find the best fossil. You know, I tell a story of a young woman, Carissa Raymond, who was on our field crew in 2014 in New Mexico. She was just a few days out of her freshman year at University of Nebraska. And she did so well in her geology class that her professor, who we work with, brought her out on his crew. But she'd never taken a paleontology class. She'd never collected a fossil. And The first few days, she was lost. She didn't know what she was looking for. But then it started to click. And she discovered a new species of fossil mammal. This thing was the size of a beaver. It was living about 200,000 years after the asteroid hit. It was one of the biggest mammals of the time. And this was found by, I think she was 18 or 19 at the time. So I like to tell these stories so people can understand what it's really like to study fossils and to be a scientist. But I also want to celebrate the people that make the discoveries. I want to give credit to my students and my mentors and my colleagues and all the people that have inspired me. I became interested in all of this stuff when I was a teenager. It's just been a big part of my life ever since. Fossils, fieldwork, paleontology. So this is so intertwined with just who I am. And I want to try to celebrate that and convey the enthusiasm, but also the reality of what it is to be a scientist. And I think, frankly, some young people are going to read that and decide that could be them. I hope so, because I was just talking with Jack Horner this week as we were doing the premiere. So, you know, Jack's retired now, and he was the consultant on the original Jurassic Park series. And of course, you know Jack well, and he's an eminent paleontologist. He discovered the first dinosaur nesting grounds. He just had an unparalleled career. He's been very supportive of me over the years and always has a kind word to say and was very happy for me to step into the Jurassic series. But I remind him all the time when he tells me congratulations on this or whatever, I say it's because of you, Jack, because when I was 14, 15 years old and becoming interested in fossils and dinosaurs, I read Jack's books. He wrote a great book called Digging Dinosaurs, another one called Dinosaur Lives. And, you know, I read those books. I read Bob Bakker's book, Dinosaur Heresies. I read 
everything by Stephen Jay Gould. You know, I read all this stuff. And that's what more than anything made me want to be a paleontologist, you know, more than even going to the museums or seeing shows on TV, was reading books. I grew up in the middle of the cornfields and the bean fields, a great place to grow up. But like, I didn't grow up in the desert or the mountains. Like books are what brought me to different worlds, different places. So it's touching to think that there might be young people out there that will pick up the books I write and get inspired in a similar way. The last area we just have to cover, and you do something really interesting. You start with the very earliest currently known primate or potential primate and bring us all the way up to the way primates evolved until you get to the great apes of whom the most famous to us is us. But I like the way you start back very early and show how there's been this steady evolution of both brain power and the way we function that relates across all of the primates and then becomes a particular subset among the great apes, who all of whom are in many ways very similar. Yeah. So one of the things that I've thought about, you know, how to bring humans into a book, like in The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, I want to tell the whole story of mammal history. It's hundreds of millions of years. You know, I want to do it in, in a way that is comprehensive, but also doesn't get bogged down in too much detail. And Unlike the dinosaurs, though, the biggest difference is, well, you know, we are a mammal. So I got to tell our story and how we fit in. And so the way I decided to do it was to really leave most everything about humans until the last chapter, which I think makes sense because we're such a new arrival. We've only been here. Homo sapiens is like 200 or 300,000 years old. That's it, you know. And even our closest kind of hominin ancestors and relatives like Lucy, those kind of things, they're just a few million years old. So I saved it to the end. And in the last chapter of the book, I basically tell the story of primates. I start off with a story because the chapter before is about the Ice Age and all about woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and giant ground sloths and armadillos the size of Volkswagens and wombats that weighed three tons and beavers the size of humans and all these amazing megafauna. That's chapter nine. And then in chapter 10, I talk about us. So I start off with the story of some of our ancestors in Wisconsin hunting mammoths. And these are real fossil sites. There are places in Wisconsin where skeletons of mammoths have been found with tools embedded into their bones from human hunters. And then I pull back from that story and say, all right, let's talk about the story of us. And I pull back and start with the first primates. And the first primate fossils we have are these tiny little teeth. They are microscopic. They're just a few millimeters long. You find the best of them in Montana. It's a little species called Purgatorius. The animal would have been the size of like a really small monkey. But the guy who discovered and described these was a professor at the University of Chicago. And that's where I did my undergrad. And he was retired by that point. His name's Lee Van Valen. He passed away about a decade ago. But he was one of the most interesting people I ever knew. He would wander around the Hyde Park neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. And I say it in the book, and there's no way around. He looked like a drifter. He had a long beard. He had a fishing hat on. He had a big pocket protector, lots of pens in his pocket. He would write note cards all the time with this tiny little text. But this guy was brilliant. And he discovered and described those fossils. And he recognized in these tiny microscopic teeth that they were taking the shape of the teeth of primates that have very particular types of cusps and ridges because a lot of primates eat fruit and that gives a certain shape to the teeth. But it was brilliant that he saw this. And from there, from these animals, they were living 100,000 years after the asteroid. It was from these humble origins, only recognized now by these tiny teeth, that the whole primate dynasty would come eventually 
producing us. And we really are just the very, very, very tip of the twig of the end of the family tree. There used to be multiple species of other humans that were alive. And up until now, up until about 40,000 years ago when Neanderthals died, there were always multiple species of humans living together, sometimes maybe even like more than 10. So today's world where we have one species, Homo sapiens, we were alone, left to ponder where we came from. And it wasn't always that way. Well, and you point out that they clearly interbred because from the book, you said East Asian and Oceanian people have about 0.3 to 5.6% of their genes with the Denisovians, who were the humans who had evolved in Asia. All non-African people, including you and me, are somewhere between 1.5 and 2.8% Neanderthal. So clearly, there had been inbreeding. And interestingly, you can tell that the origins are in Africa because for humans who stayed in Africa, they don't get either Neanderthal or Denisovian genes. They just have purely homo sapien genes. Yeah, the fossil record tells us that our ancestry comes from Africa because there's lots of species of fossil extinct humans that kind of build up the family tree and they're only known from Africa. But then you start to see some humans appearing later in the fossil record in other places. And there were multiple waves of migration out of Africa. And the most recent wave was when our own species, Homo sapiens, came out of Africa, probably about 200-ish thousand years ago. But when our Homo sapiens species first left Africa, they would have encountered other humans. They would have encountered Neanderthals in Europe. They would have encountered these Denisova people in Asia. And they would have bred with them because they were closely related enough. Just like, you know, lions and tigers can breed in the wild. Not always successfully, but it can happen. They're closely enough related. Same with us and those other species of humans. And so we carry the legacy of this in our genomes. You and I both have genes from Neanderthals. And the only people really that don't are, as you say, the members of our species, Homo sapiens, that stayed in Africa. And it is amazing how the fossils and the genetics come together to tell this story of human history and human migration. I find it fascinating. I'm not a geneticist. This gets kind of to the limit of my knowledge, but there's some great books on genetics and some really amazing researchers that just constantly are just blowing my mind with the stuff they're finding. People like Eleanor Scarry and Tom Higgum. And Tom Higgum wrote a book recently about human history. There's a new book on the genetics of humans in the Americas that came out. I love this stuff. I'm a real fan when it comes to the genetics because it's so far from what I know, <laughs> but it's a fascinating story. Well, and I think in the closing section of your book, you communicate a good bit of that. I really want to thank you for joining me, particularly this week when you're also launching a mega movie worldwide. I loved reading the new book, The Rise and Reign of the Mammals. I want to recommend it to everyone, as well as going back and getting the dinosaur book. You are a fascinating writer. You're a great scholar. I'm looking forward to seeing Jurassic World Dominion in theaters. And knowing you were part of it makes it, frankly, even more fun. I think you're a worthy successor to Jack Horner, and I'm sure he's very proud of the work you're now doing. Please keep in touch. I really look forward to a future opportunity to have another podcast about whatever comes next in your life. Yes. We'll do another interview, and you're always welcome to join us in Scotland if you and your wife find yourself out in that part of the world. Come see our dinosaurs. And then for anybody listening, I'm pretty easy to find on 
social media. So get in touch. I love talking with people. I love chat with people. I love keeping just a broad perspective and hearing from all kinds of people, learning new things. And especially if anybody's read the books and they want to ask any questions or give any feedback, I'm pretty easy to find. The best way is on Twitter. That's at Steve Brusati, just my name. Very easy to find. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Steve Brusati. You can get a link to buy his new book, The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, A New History from the Shadow of Dinosaurs to Us, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.